Welcome to Prairie Doc On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation of 501c3 provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Doc programs. Please follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedoc.org for more information on making a charitable gift. What is one type of medicine that combines nutrition, physical activity, behavior, and possibly medication or surgery? Obesity medicine, a practical guide to obesity medicine. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Hello and welcome to On Call with Prairie Doc. I'm Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, tonight's Prairie Doc host. Thank you for joining us as we enter our 22nd season, providing health information based on science built on trust. Continuing that tradition is our goal for tonight's discussion. Tonight's topic is obesity medicine and weight loss. Joining us tonight on the campus of South Dakota State University are Dr. Zoila Lansing from Avera Medical Group Comprehensive Weight Management and Dr. Bradley Thamert from Surgical Institute of South Dakota. Welcome, Dr. Thamert, Dr. Lansing, and, and we can go by first names if that's okay please, with you. Please. So, uh, first of all, Dr. Thamert, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, um, I'm a general bariatric surgeon. I've been in Sioux Falls now since 1998, so a little over 25 years. Three daughters in the medical field and, uh, and my wife, and um, we love Sioux Falls. And my practice basically is general surgery, uh, reflux surgery, and then weight loss surgery, the bariatric surgery that we're gonna talk about tonight. Awesome, thanks so much for, for joining us here. And I understand this isn't your first time on the show. It is not, but it's been a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Lansing, uh, tell us about yourself too, please. So I'm a uh, family practice by training. And for the last uh, couple of years, I joined uh, Avera Comprehensive Weight Loss Management. I'm doing obesity medicine, and I had passion in doing this type of medicine since I was doing family practice. So it's a perfect timing when Avera asked me to join their group. So wonderful. Well, thank you. Welcome yeah. to have you. Yeah. Before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions now about obesity and weight loss. As a reminder, all names and information remain anonymous. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org, or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question if you would like to be considered for the prize, which includes our newest book that just recently came out. So, uh, Zoilo, what is obesity? Okay, obesity. I will use the OMA, or Obesity Medical Association, definition. So when you talk about obesity, we have to think about it as a disease. It's a chronic, 
it's a progressive, it's a relapsing, it's multifactor, neurobehavioral disease that alters the physiologic function of the fat tissue that can cause biochemical and mass effect to the person who is suffering from obesity. That is a lengthy yeah. definition of obesity which is perfectly defined by the OMA. How would you uh, more simply define it? So obesity is basically a multifactorial disease. It's not a disease that is based on willpower, if I can simplify that. So if a patient is suffering the disease of obesity, they have to remember it's not all their fault. There is a bio and neurobehavioral changes that is happening. So it's not a disease of willpower, if I can say. So. Sure, sure. Um, what are some of the benefits or drawbacks? First, we'll start with the drawbacks of obesity. Brad. So uh, obesity is, causes many secondary issues and it is probably becoming the leading cause of not just heart disease, stroke, but also cancer risk. And when I use the word, word obesity with my patients, we, we fall back on something that uh, the insurance companies and everyone else in medicine uses now called BMI, which stands for Body Mass Index. So when we're talking with our patients, we aren't usually focusing so much on their weight as we are their BMI. And the reason we use Body Mass Index BMI is because you have to take into account people's height. You can't compare the weight of a four-foot-tall person to the weight of a six-foot-tall person. And, and uh, typically, a BMI of 40 or higher is considered morbidly obese, and usually those are people that are 100-plus pounds overweight in general, but it does depend on their height for how much they have to be overweight to have a BMI of 40 or higher. So 40 is kind of the, the general rule where you're in the morbid obesity category. And that has a high chance of causing diabetes, uh, hypertension, and then the cancer risk is 10 times higher as your BMI goes over 40, and your life expectancy is reduced at least 15 years once your BMI is over 40. Yeah. Um, so the cutoff for obesity is about 30, and that's calculated using your height and your weight. Correct. And, um, you know, just under that, there's overweight, and then there's normal. Normal goes up to what, like I think, 25 or 20. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Normal is considered 25, right, and but, yeah, yeah, anything between 25 and 29, you're still okay. Once you hit 30, you're kind of considered obese. Now, most of us men will say, well, most of that's muscle. So how? I, I mean, I do have some power lifters that, mm -hmm. you know, they're quite toned, but they maybe their BMI calculates to the 30s, how, how do you account for that? It's not perfect. I mean, it's the best we have, and it is not perfect, obviously, when we're looking at being, you know, if you have a football player, you know, with a, a body fat of 6%, uh, but they're very heavy because of their muscle weight, you can't always just use BMI in that case. So that's why we employ sometimes body composition analyzer. So not a lot of patients with a B, normal BMI, that means say they're not obese, but when you look at it, if the patient becomes a, on a, a age group wherein there is sarcopenia, meaning muscle wasting, they might have a normal BMI, but their muscle mass is so low that it will be erroneous. Same is true with football player. Football player can have a BMI of 35, but they're all muscle. Yeah. So in some of those instances, sometimes we have to sort out to a body composition analyzer. So it seems like people 
all say or feel or kind of intuitively think I need to lose weight. But what are some of the benefits of weight loss? Benefits of weight loss, I mean, in a perspective for your health, it prevents you from having the com complication such as diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. At the same time, some cancer that are related, when you look at it, there is about 13 different cancer related to obesity, 13 cancer. So can you imagine, if you lose significant amount of weight, then we're talking about prevention of a disease, so. And so the next step, okay, now I wanna lose weight. How would, how would you recommend to someone they lose weight? So if someone's actually in that morbidly obese category, meaning their BMI is 40 or higher, um, usually when they make it to the surgeon's office, uh, almost all have tried multiple diets and failed. And my first job is to make them understand that that's okay and actually it's quite normal. If you look at the statistics on someone's ability to lose weight when they're significantly overweight, morbidly obese, and they need to lose the significant amount of weight, it's less than a 5% chance that you can do it with diet and exercise. And as your BMI gets higher, close to 50, it's less than a 1% chance and approaches zero quickly. So I tell people, you know, you, you weren't likely that you're gonna lose weight with any diet or exercise once you're morbidly obese and the data supports that. So that's the first thing is to check the box that they're normal, that they're failing at their, their yeah. diet and exercise. Yeah. And then the data on a surgical procedure is significantly better to have them have a good chance of long-term weight loss success. And then we start going down that path of what their options are. Sure, sure. Um, we're starting to get some questions already. This person uh, from Wabe says, does beer cause belly fat? Well, you know, there's like a misnomer, like a beer belly, right? You know, the reality of it is beer contains calories. And that calorie can really you know, pack up your weight. And the reality of it, it's not just the beer that's really causing the weight gain, but what comes along with the beer. You know, you might have a beer, you might have a wings on it, you might have a fries on it. It's all the calories that really plays a role in having a beer belly, but just it was just termed beer belly because everybody is drinking beer will have a beer belly, right? So. Yeah. And, and it's the type of calorie. Liquid calories are the fastest, easiest calorie mm -hmm. to get in our body, and beer and alcohol is a liquid calorie, so it's really easy to put in a lot of liquid calories in a hurry versus solid calories, mm -hmm. typically. And especially with pop. Yep. Mm -hmm. And especially with also all those coffee. floofy, fluffy coffee drinks now that yeah, right. everyone's got to have. Uh, this person asks, um, how do you know if you have visceral fat? under the abdominal muscles. And this kind of goes with that, that beer yeah. belly thing. You know, as we're getting older, mm -hmm. we're starting to store fat. People store fat differently, um, and men and women store fat differently also. And some people are exomorphs where they carry their fat on the belly wall, and they can have six or eight inches of fat depth on their mm -hmm. belly wall. And some people, I've seen many morbidly obese patients, men often, where their belly wall is a quarter inch thick. It's paper thin, but their visceral fat, which is the fat around the intestines, is mm -hmm. massive. And some studies suggest that the visceral fat is actually more dangerous yep, it than is more the, dangerous. the external fat, but people store fat differently. Is there a way to know where you're storing your fat, or is it just how, 
how things it, look. It can be hard sometimes when I examine a patient's belly to know if how deep the belly wall is and what's going to be on the other side. And sometimes you don't know that until you're in surgery or unless they've had some type of an imaging okay. study like a CAT scan that mm -hmm. shows where their fat is within their abdomen. Is it on the outside or the inside? So sometimes we don't know. This person says, how to avoid obesity if you have a you know, genetic predisposition in your family? Well, that's a good question. It's almost like, like when you have a genetic that you are do you think you're predisposed? But I think when you have a risk factor, which is genetics, you need to make sure at a young age you do everything as much as you can, you know? Genetics, you cannot reverse it. But there is a phenomenon called you know, epigenetic makeup. You know, if uh, a couple who is morbidly obese, if they are trying to get a child, I always tell them whatever you do while you are, before you get pregnant, can affect the genetic makeup of your kid. So that is like epigenetics, almost like if you try to stay healthy while you're pregnant, most likely your kid will not, I mean, the transmission of that genetic can alter. So genetics is hard. I mean, when you look at it, most of obesity patients have 80 to 90% have genetic predisposition, but you don't have to tell them, okay, you are destined to become obese, but you have to tell them you have a likelihood that you become obese if you don't change the way you eat or the way you're, as far as physical activity is concerned. Yeah, I think you know genetics play a role, but yeah. also there's this learned behavior that you learn mm -hmm. from your parents, where it's okay, well dad always came home and went right on the couch and sat there the rest of the night. That's right. And, and that's normal. Mm -hmm. And and then and he and and he was really big or something and I'm not talking about my own dad. I'm, <laughs> but uh, you know it it it, it 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 there's a learned behavior there that that can happen with not just with activity but with diet and exercise mm -hmm. and TV and sure. yep. you know how do we how do we counteract that? How do we help that? Education. I mean, um, yeah, it's 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 evident right now. Uh, only 1% of the population that is a candidate for surgery in the United States is actually going on to have surgery. Yeah. We're barely touching the tip of the iceberg. Um, and as everyone is probably aware, because it's in the news all the time, obesity is growing in this country. It's, it's the percent of people in our country that are obese keeps getting higher and higher by every decade. Mm -hmm. And um, some of it is learned behavior, environmental, and metabolism, and all those things. So mm -hmm. I think it's education you know, keep talking about it, um, about the secondary effects of the obesity, the life expectancy changes, the cancer risks, and, and the expense to our country and the healthcare system because of obesity is significant. I think it, it doesn't help all the commercials for food and junk food all the time, how easy it is to get junk food, mm -hmm. and, and how much cheaper sometimes it's true. high it's true. calorie yeah. foods are and high carbohydrate foods are. Yeah. Uh, compared to good nutritious food. Yeah. Um, probably something we're not gonna solve right now, but we can try to help people with, deal, deal with. Yeah. Uh, dating back to the 1960s, bariatric surgery has been a popular method for weight loss. One woman in Brookings used that surgery to help her with her weight loss journey. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower spoke to her about her success, but also the necessary changes she made to her lifestyle. Throughout Jamie Selleck's life, she has struggled with weight problems. I always was the chubby kid growing up, 
through my adult life, I would diet, I'd lose the weight, life would get in the way, and then I'd go back to my old habits. And then I'd put on more weight that I, than I lost. And it was a constant back and forth. That's when she joked to her husband about getting bariatric surgery, but later the talks became more serious. They started branching out until they found one surgeon that insurance would help cover, and that surgeon was in Arkansas. We were there for 10 days, and um, we flew on a Sunday. We met with the clinic on Monday. Um, we did um, a, a bunch of different appointments on Monday. On Tuesday, we met with the surgeon, and then Wednesday, I had the surgery. The type of surgery Selig had was a duodenal switch, which removes a portion of your stomach along with your small intestine to help reduce the time it takes for food to get to your intestines. She had the surgery in August of 2022. Physically, I didn't feel any different. And I was on a liquid diet and I wasn't hungry. <laughs> um, so physically, I didn't see a big difference right away. Over a year later, and she feels completely different for the better. I'm running on my elliptical, I'm doing weightlifting, I'm doing resistance workout, I'm doing cardio exercise videos, I kayak. I got a kayak this summer and that was the most fun ever. However, she says getting the surgery is one thing, but changing your life is the hard part. Every day, Selick must count her calories to make sure she is eating right and getting all the necessary nutrients. I have to document my protein. Um, that's one of the major macros that you have to follow is making sure you get enough protein in. Um, and then um, measure. I have to measure, measure weigh and measure my, my food. Um, am I getting complex carbs? Um, am I staying underneath five grams of sugar and five grams of fat on anything that is packaged? And she wants to reiterate the importance of changing a lifestyle if bariatric surgery is something somebody wants. You still have to make changes. This is a tool. It's not something that is a quick fix. It's not the, the magic peel. It's a tool that I use to, to get to better health. Thank you very much, Jamie, for sharing your story and, and good job and keep up the good work and, and uh, hopefully it can be a uh, example for others. Uh, you know, and that's part of the key there was that um, the program really emphasized diet and exercise well before even doing surgery. And, and so I understand that's part of the program yes. that, that you guys are building at Avera. Yes. For any patient who will be doing surgery, we require them to do number of visits to us, not just because we want them to lose a certain amount of weight, but the most important thing is the lifestyle changes that we want them to carry after the surgery because surgery is a life-changing procedure. What you do after surgery is the most important thing. So. And why is that? Why is it important? Well, because you know, when you look at surgery, you can compare it to a jump start. Okay, if you jump start your situation, it doesn't mean that the car will go anywhere. Not unless you ride the car. And when you ride the car after you jump start it, you need to decide whether you move forward and be a different person, 
or you move backward and go to the same person that you used to be. So it's very important to follow them up and making sure that all the things that will be done so that they can maintain their weight. Because it's easy to follow up the crack and that crack can be a cliff. Once it becomes a cliff, then everything goes back to where it and they start to regain exactly. all that weight. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, Brad, uh, tell us about bariatric surgery. How does it work? What, what happens? Sure, so bariatric surgery has been around for many, many decades now, and it's kind of evolved a little bit from being open surgery to minimally invasive, and that's certainly how most bariatric surgeons do the surgery now with the tiny incisions, either laparoscopically or robotically. And, and a lot of these procedures are outpatient now where patients go home the same day and the, the big part of a weight loss bariatric surgery is we do a couple things that um, are so different than when you're dieting. So when you're dieting you have a full size stomach and you're not putting much food into it so you're always in that starvation feeling mode because you have that big quart sized stomach. Surgery specifically causes restriction so every weight loss surgery that's performed all has one thing in common and that's that we make a small stomach of some sort one way or the other. So you have a small volume to put food into, so it takes a little bit of food and you get feedback of pressure, pain if you overeat, and you eat less, thus you eat less calories. And the other part of some of the weight loss surgeries are that we add malabsorption, which basically means we reroute some of the intestine so you don't absorb all the calories you take in. So you have a smaller stomach and then you don't absorb all the calories you take in. So that's a second component that we add to some of our surgeries. Um, are there some people you don't recommend surgery to? Yeah, uh, so we have a center of excellence at Avera and, and you have to kind of go through clearance first of all and to prove that you're gonna be a good candidate for the surgery long term because you can hurt yourself after one of these surgeries if you go out and really try to overeat or do things mm -hmm. that are inappropriate. You can get quite ill actually. So there are patients that sometimes fail out and don't get the surgery from an addiction issue and it could be drug or alcohol or um, an eating disorder where they're going to be vomiting all the time. Those people maybe aren't candidates or we sometimes will see people with a medical condition and maybe it's a new cancer diagnosis. Um, that you know they're going to be going through other lifestyle changes that they're probably not a candidate at that time sure. uh, for a surgical procedure. So there are patients that don't make it to surgery for one reason or the other. You know, this person, uh, caller says they're 66 years old, 80 pounds overweight with uncontrolled diabetes. Would this caller be eligible for gastric bypass? Yes, yeah, good question. And, and yes, possibly. So when I started doing bariatric surgery 20 some years ago, 65 was for most people in the country, kind of a hard stop, but uh, mm -hmm. now 75 is the new 65 and everything keeps moving up and people are living lo longer. And I've certainly done several weight loss surgeries on people into their mid 70s now. Mm -hmm. And when you start to approach those ages, the 60s and 70s, not everyone's the same. Yeah. It's pretty easy if you have a otherwise healthy 40 year old that they should get surgery, but um, it depends on the patient, you know. Mm -hmm. So we are doing surgery into the 70s now for weight loss and some of the data supporting that patients still get enough benefit out of it to improve their life expectancy, drop their medication costs, and have a better quality of life. So, And the surgery itself is less invasive, so it it's makes less sense invasive. that you can go... People are tolerating older. it at an older age, right? Wonderful. Uh, who is the, the prime candidate? Who would you recommend is the prime candidate for surgery? That's a tough one. I mean, the prime candidate to me is really anybody 
that has a BMI over 40. And the reason anybody that has a BMI over 40 is a candidate, um, unless they have those other conditions we talked about, um, is because the chance that that patient is going to lose the weight on their own and actually keep it off is so low. The data says less than 5% chance that you can successfully lose a large amount of weight once you have a high BMI and keep it off long term. So this, the odds are really stacked against you. Um, so anybody really, I would say, is a potential candidate based on their BMI alone. What are some of the complications? Uh, complications of surgery, when you're morbidly obese, you already have higher risk of surgery. You know, so blood clots in their leg are a risk for any surgery when you're overweight. So we do lots of preventative things before surgery, during surgery, and after surgery to prevent our patients from blood clots. So that's one of the main things we talk about. Uh, specific to inside the abdomen, there's staple lines and things, and you can have leaks and bleeds uh, from any surgical procedure, and that can happen with weight loss surgery. But in general, the statistics are very low for that complication in the 1% range or less Sure. for a risk of a true complication from the surgery. So I always tell people, um, the risk of a complication from a surgery is much lower than the risk of the diabetes, hypertension, and the yeah. obesity mm -hmm. itself. The risk of you dying from a complication of your obesity is way higher than the risk of you dying from a complication of a surgical procedure. Sure. So, Zoilo, you know, there might be some people out there thinking, well, maybe, you know, I, I certainly would recommend diet and exercise, mm -hmm. eating less, exercising more, finding a way to, to, to try that. Mm -hmm. And, and they've probably tried that in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. And now they're hearing about some of these new medications mm -hmm. that might be an option. Yes. Could you tell us about some of those? So medication, what we call it in our field, is called anti-obesity medication. So it's been in the state, like in the history for at least in the 1900s, but nowadays, everybody is in social media. They are looking at doing semaglutides as generic, and it is, it, you know, people are wanting to have that. But the most important thing, more than the medication itself, I will explain to the patient, just like surgery, it's a tool. Sure. So when I talk to patients about medication, I always tell them, there is no such medication that will change one's personality with regards to their point of view with food. There's no medication that will change one's perspective about exercise. There's no magic pill. I always tell patients, if you're gonna lose weight with lifestyle changes plus medication, majority of your weight loss is actually from your lifestyle. What I tell patients, if I start you on medication, it's because I don't want you to suffer because when you portion because of that nutritional changes plus your physical activity, sooner or later you're gonna be hungry. And that hunger can make you fall back. That's where the medication comes into play. Yeah, and so how does that help? How does so, the GLP-1 agonist? All right, so when we talk about the most popular now, the GLP-1 agonist. So and G that's the Ozempic, Ozempic or Munjaro and everything. Whatever. So we need to go back, what is GLP-1? GLP-1 is actually a hormone that we produce naturally. We have it in our body. But what happened is, when they were developing a medicine for diabetes, they call it incretins. 
they incidentally find that given GLP-1 on diabetes, they start losing weight because it works in two ways. It goes to your gut, slows down the emptying. It goes to your brain, it minimizes the food noises. So after they discovered that after they gave it to a, di to a diabetes because it was intentionally for diabetes, they noticed that these patients who are taking GLP-1 are losing weight. And then they started marketing it as a weight loss medicine. So when you look at it, it was an accidental finding. Now they're making good amount of <laughs> And so people profit. are feeling full faster, yeah. sometimes yeah. not eating as much yeah. and, and, and that's a that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's you know it's it's because of this medication. Yeah. Um, what are some of the risks with that though? Of course the risk any any medication will always have a risk. One of the risks for having a GLP one is the side effects. Side effects from nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, pancreatitis but we always warn the patient if you're going to be taking GLP-1, there's a chance of what we call medullary thyroid carcinoma. So initially it's being reported mainly happening on mice and rats when they're doing that. But there are some cases that they have been find, they have found it in some people who is doing it. And there are some reported cases of ileus, you know, gastrophoresis and those kind of things. Slowing the gut so exactly. much so that much, it yeah. becomes, they're sick all the time. Exactly, so you have to really assess the patient because when we decide if a patient is a good candidate for medical weight loss or additional medication on top of their lifestyle changes, you need to phenotypically assess them. Phenotypically meaning to say, what is their character? Are they more the grazer? Are they more the snacker? Or are they type of person who is always hungry all the time? Or are they more of that they don't feel satisfied? So each and every characteristic of particular individual have a different medication. So you need to assess that by doing your history, by examining the patient and talking to them because not all patients will be having issue with satiation. GLP-1 is perfect if a patient have satiation problem. They're never feeling full. Yes, enough. but it's not effective for those grazer. Gotcha. You know, just want to munch on. That's a different medication that, you know, that we have to kind of pick which is the most appropriate medication for them. So, so something to talk, yes. talk to your doctor about. Exactly. How long can you stay on these medications? So most of the medications that are FDA approved Wegovy, Quisimia, Contrave, they're approved for lifetime, but if you go out of the natural prescription, let's say semaglutide like Ozempic, then you are on the gray zone. So Quisimia is approved for lifetime, Contrave is approved for it, so you can do it for lifetime if you want to, but you always have to assess the, the, the effectivity to patient. So some of this medication are approved, but when you go on the normal FDA approval, then you are on the gray zone. So you have to assess whether the patient will benefit long-term. So. And these medications are often expensive. They are. Too. They are. 
When told by his doctor that he needed to change his lifestyle to improve his health, Brookings resident Keith Way took that seriously. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer met with him to talk about his career change that he says saved his life. Keith Wade is a resident of Brookings who struggled to stay healthy, and that led him to several health problems eight years ago. I've on and off for about eight years, um, had a struggle with the weight, um, was diagnosed eight years ago with prediabetes, um, and then about four and a half years after that was diabetes, and um, was on medication um, to try to can control the diabetes. Um, it just was definitely a big struggle for me um, personally. Wade was a gas station manager who felt tired coming home from work and was always tempted by the food there. And so I got into the habit of eating foods that I shouldn't have been eating that made my diabetes worse. You know, so then it just got progressively worse and the doctor had to put me on more and more medication to try to control that diabetes. That's when he decided to make a career change that benefited his health. Two years ago, Wade became a mail carrier for the post office where he walks around 13 miles a day. That was probably the best move that I made, not just for the monetary and the benefit value, but health-wise, um, it changed my life. When I started the post office, I was almost 250 pounds, and uh, today I'm at 185. Since the career change, Wade has been eating healthier, he reversed his diabetes, and is doing activities he never thought he'd participate in eight years ago. I ran my first 5K. I've never done a 5K in my life. I ended up doing it in under 30 minutes, so I, I mean, it was super impressed with that. Never thought ever in my life that I would be able to do a 5K at, at 45 years old. It's also helped him in his family life. I'm able to do things with my kids now that I previously couldn't do because I was out of shape um, and I had that disease that just held me back. And now um, with the weight loss, I'm able to do things, run around with them, play, play golf with them, play other sports and just be the dad that I needed to be for those kids. Wade says for anyone who wants to be more active, the best thing to start with is just walking. You can walk at your own pace. You don't have to be a mailman walking out there miles and miles a day. Just get out there and just start walking. You know, even if it's 10 minutes, you know, build up that stamina to you know, maybe make it a half an hour to go out there and walk. Thank you, Keith, for sharing your story. It's awesome. So you were just saying he's a 5% or a 1% or what, yeah. but, and, but awesome. people do it. They people do. do it. They can. You know, motivate, it, it, a lot of it comes down to behavior change and, and motivation and, 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 and habit, changing our habits. How, how can you change your habits? Motivation. <laughs> yeah, well, all right, motivation. <laughs> it's but, so hard. I mean, um, you ha education, first of all, about what you're doing and, and learning about how to mm -hmm. eat better. Some people really don't know how to eat healthy, um, and so sometimes it's just education. Most people understand that they have to exercise. 
Mm -hmm. Maybe yep. it's just teaching them the right type that they can do and, and not doing it too fast, too soon, so you get injured and then you don't like it and yeah. then you stop. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. that's all back to education and then having the motivation to follow through with it. Yeah. So you can improve motivation by getting an accountability partner, someone that's going to encourage you or someone you're going to do it with, mm -hmm. that you're going to go exercise with, and that yep. way, you're, I don't want to get up at 5 a.m. Well, I know Joe's also going there and I don't want to ditch out on him. So, I mean, there's there's things you can do. There, there's apps mm -hmm. out there um, that can track your calories. And, mm -hmm. and when you have to write down your calories, you think, oh, you might second guess some of the things you're eating. Or you can get your streak going. Oh, I've gone this many days of this many calories. I've gone this many days of exercising. I don't want to lose my streak. I mean, it depends on the person and, and, right. and, and how, what motivates them or thinking about I want to be around for my grandkids or whatever, you know, it, 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 there's, there's motivating factors. Do you, what do you recommend sometimes? So for most of my patients when I do my initial intake for anyone who wants to lose weight, maybe surgical or non-surgical, I always ask about motivation because the right motivation for an individual is very important because weight loss is very challenging. So a lot of my patients will have motivation because they want to play with their grandkids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They want to be healthier. They want to have a trip next year. They want to have a wedding or something like that. But the motivation that you always want to emphasize to them is a motivation that is based on their self, not because of somebody else. They want to lose their weight because they want to lose it for themselves. Because what will happen if they are doing it for grandkids and the grandkids are already old? Yeah. So that motivation goes away. So I always emphasize the motivation that you need to have is because you want to do it for yourself. But yeah. that still can be, you know, there's going to be a patient population there that, well, they want to do it for themselves, but, or maybe they, so they look better, but then you can also get into this, you know, I, I, um, unhealthy weight loss. Yeah. You know, how do you spot that? So those particular patients, when we, we, when we do our initial intake, we always want to make sure we, we do our depression screening, anxiety screening, binge eating scoring system, so that we can tease out, is it you wanted to lose weight more because you want to be healthier, or is it more of the looks? So we want to make sure that they, they don't have a body dysmorphic disorder because you can have that kind of patient that they will jump from one doctor to another because for the fact that they are not losing as much as they want to. So by doing your history, you can really find out some of these patients that they want to do it just because of the looks, not because they want to be healthier. So that's a very important thing that we need to evaluate. And if someone has a family member they're concerned about an eating disorder, yeah. how would you recommend they get help? So at Avera, we have a uh, eating disorder counseling, so we want to make sure that we, we refer them to the appropriate uh, person to start doing the counseling. So because it's very important to, to have that conversation. If you have uh, eating disorder, we need to make sure that uh, we need to do the appropriate referral. So Yeah. Uh, this person asked about a carnivore diet. Does that help obesity? So, you know, I think of a ketogenic diet or, uh, you know, a low-carb diet, right. which, granted, I'm often telling patients to eat fewer carbs, but there is that extreme diet that can be quite successful, but is it, is it sustainable, or how does that work? 
I don't see it sustainable for most of the patients yeah. that, yeah, well, mm -hmm. I see all the patients that have tried it and failed it and that are seeing me uh, for surgery. But these diets are hard, uh, typically, and that you're eating um, different foods that you can maybe only find if you buy them and brought, bring them at home. So going out can be uh, tough. Um, and it still comes down to calories. No matter what diet you choose to do, your body's an engine, and if, it doesn't matter if you're giving it protein or fat, calories or whatever, you have to give it less for it to want to burn your fat. So all these diets still are based on calorie intake and then exercise and all the other things. So they can work, but sticking with them is the hard part. Sure. You, you don't have negative feedback like you get with a restricted surgery so often these people are hungry and that's why they fail. Yeah. yeah so that's why whenever I talk to patients about changes, changes to lose weight it needs to be sustainable and in order for it to be sustainable the patient needs to like it because if they don't like it and they can't afford it they will probably gonna do it for a few weeks or a few months and after that they will fall off the wagon so it's very important to make sure you educate them about the concept of nutrition, having a negative caloric deficit, having a regular physical activity, stress management, and sleep. So it's very important because a lot of patients will do this kind of diet, this kind of diet, and then when you look at the data with regards to you know, which diet really works for a particular individual, when they interpolate all the data, it, 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 it doesn't really matter. when. What matters is the people who are able to lose and maintain the weight is the one that are consistent, not because they did this, they did this, and they did this, but being consistent in what they do. And and, and those things add up. Those, yes. You know, being, you know I'm, I'm going to go for a 10-minute walk yeah. every day after lunch. Holy cow, that's an hour by, by the end of the week, and, and that adds up and adds up. Or and I'm going to cut out pop, or yeah. I'm going to not have that. Yeah. Se second or third yeah. beverage or It becomes whatever. a second nature to them to develop such a behavior because initially the body will resist it. But once you become accustomed to those changes and you like those changes, it becomes a second nature to you because the brain can still be trained, but we have to start somewhere. This person from Sioux Falls is a lot, 60 pounds, good job. Um, I am at a good weight, but cannot lose the belly fat. Do you have any suggestions to reduce the belly fat? They exercise, do Zumba, etc. Anything specific for belly fat that you can think of? Liposuction. Liposuction. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I mean, your body's going to take fat from where it wants to, and um, it, it, if it's a male's person, I mean, most males carry all their weight in their belly anyway, so the only option is to just keep losing more weight. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert in this by any means myself, you know, perhaps seeing your doctor and, and working with a physical therapist or something on some exercises or, or you know, abdominal exercises or something. Which will but, help tone your muscles and that's great. Um, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, this says, can my obesity affect my chances of getting pregnant? For sure, yeah. 100%. It's yeah. a big cause of infertility is morbid obesity. And as Dr. Lansing said also, if you become pregnant as a morbidly obese female, genetically you can alter the baby um, and affect that baby's genetics for becoming obese. Yeah. So yes. And I think it can affect um, uh, the, the male's fertility as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, can my children have problems with obesity if I have trouble with it. And we kind of covered this yeah. some be before, but uh, in essence, 
Yes, yes. right. It, there's genetic factors, and then there's learned behaviors, yes. and there's definitely. Yeah. So on any individual who have a high risk because of their family history, you want to start them from the beginning. You know, if you're a mom who is overweight or obese, you don't want to do the same thing with your child, meaning to say eating the same thing, not having physical activity. You need to be an example for your child. So that is a very important thing. Whenever I see patient who is struggling with overweight or obesity, if their child is obese and they're just telling them, okay, eat whatever I eat, that tells them that they, are not, they don't really care to what the future may bring to their child. But if they are very conscious about it, I know I'm a mom who is overweight or I'm a dad who is overweight. I need to cut this particular disease in my part so that it will not transfer. So you need to do everything in your power to make sure, you know, as a family practice, we have the chance to make it happen from the time that we see the child, from the time that they were born up to our well child visit. You need to watch that out and make sure that you educate parents and the children. And we know that limiting screen time is important, yep. encouraging physical activity, yep. encouraging healthy eating habits and snacking habits. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it's so multifactorial. Exactly. Just in a final couple minutes, uh, Dr. Thamert, what would you like to share with people out there that you know have been just suffering from diet to diet and, and frustrated and, and have not been able to lose weight? So if you've tried your diets, uh, and first of all, I'd say you're not alone. Most people who are significantly overweight really do struggle and, and fail to lose the amount of weight they need to. Um, we have a bariatric center of excellence at Avera McKinnon, and um, you have nothing to lose to come engage in the program. That doesn't mean you're gonna get surgery. We don't just see someone in our clinic and then schedule surgery. It's a process of normally three to four months when I meet my first patient the first time where they go through the prog program, they see the psychologist, they see a dietitian, they go with Dr. Lansing and learn all about all the things for lifestyle and medications and such. And then I see them a second time after they've cleared all those hoops. So everyone in the program said they're ready for surgery. So it's a big process. And during that time, the patient learns a lot of good education about their disease and why they potentially couldn't fix it and what they know they now need to do to fix it. And, and the only thing that has good long-term success rate for morbid obesity is, is surgery. Yeah, it's you know, not perfect though. It's mm -hmm. not perfect. You can out-eat any surgery in the yeah. world and that's one of the things we try to educate pre-surgery with our patients is that uh, they still have to have the lifestyle changes to be successful even with a surgical procedure. It's just a tool. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest, of course, I'm gonna recommend eating less and exercising yep. more to all my patients, number one, but, but sometimes it can be, be so frustrating and, and those new medications are, show some promise, but there's the expense and then there's the ongoing expense and commitment. And so the surgery option, I, I'll be honest, I might start sending a few patients. Uh, you yeah, know, there's that good where studies that show that um, yeah. patients save money with surgery yeah. because of not just food costs, so their food bills go way down typically after a surgical procedure for obvious yeah. reason, mm -hmm. but the expense of all those medications, I mean, often our patients come in and they're on dozens of medications and by the time they're done with their weight loss, they're down to their multivitamins and mm -hmm. maybe, you yeah. know, 
you know, there's a good chance it's, a lot of their diseases have been cured. It's nice to know there's plenty of options for people. Go see your doctor yeah. and, and get some support and get some education and, and you can do it. Yes. The winner of our prize tonight is Connie. Thank you, Connie, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be right back after this. Searching for trusted medical information or looking for a doctor for your medical needs? Head to the Prairie Doc YouTube channel today to access previous On Call with the Prairie Doc episodes. And make sure to join us most Thursdays on SDPB or streaming on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. People often think they need to lose weight. The hard part, of course, is following through on that desire in a sustained and successful manner. Here are a few of the ways people do lose weight and the secrets of their success. Some people should not lose weight, so please talk to your doctor. First of all, consider the reasons to lose weight. Benefits can include having more energy, improved mobility, fewer aches and pains, sleeping better, improvement in mood, lower blood pressure, and lower risk of heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. Some may do it for a positive self-image but that reason alone may be hard to satisfy. The secret to success is eating less and exercising more. Do that and one can get all those benefits without actually losing weight. If the pounds fall with time, great. But if they do not, please do not get discouraged. You are healthier with efforts at eating less and exercising more, even if the weight does not drop. Try keeping track of everything you eat. Counting calories can help you second guess those poor decisions. Do not forget the calories that you drink. Meanwhile, logging your exercise can help motivate you to do more. Consider an app that tracks food and activity. Some apps have a social component or a health coach, which may help with following through with your goals. We have all seen diets that promise fast results, and indeed many can be quite successful in the short term. You may know someone that lost over 50 pounds with a ketogenic, high-protein diet. Unfortunately, they are hard to sustain, and people often find themselves right back where they started, but even more frustrated. Many fad diets involve buying something and eating more of something. While they could be helpful, long-term success depends on some level of eating less and exercising more. One extreme way people lose weight is with bypass surgery. Those can vary, but essentially the surgery helps by limiting the amount of food you consume, helping to decrease your appetite, decreasing your calorie intake, decreasing the absorption of food, and helping you lose weight. Certainly, there are risks of complications and risks of vitamin deficiencies. Sometimes people gradually eat more over time and gain the weight back. This is why the most successful bariatric surgery programs stress the importance of a healthy diet and exercise, even before surgery, to help retrain people's behavior to improve long-term success. A newer way many people have been losing weight is with a diabetes medication. These medications, GLP-1 agonists, are often a once a week or daily injection, although even newer ones can be taken by mouth. For weight loss, they help by decreasing your appetite and helping you feel full faster. Thus, they help you eat less. 
Currently, they are expensive. Once again, the secret to weight loss is to eat less and exercise more. Now you have it. How do you do that successfully? Sure and steady progress. Set a behavior goal and turn it into a habit. Remember, when you eat less and exercise more, you are healthier regardless of weight. Thank you so much to our guests, Dr. Lansing and Dr. Thamert, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about obesity medicine and weight loss. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online. Listen to us live every Wednesday morning at 9.30 on KBRK Brookings. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever podcasts can be found. From all of us here at On Call with Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of health information based on science built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Vascular disease is the name given to a variety of illnesses that can affect the circulatory system and can be found in anyone. Arteries, veins, and capillaries. Understanding your vascular health. Next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. Hi, my name is Ken Bartholomew and I'm a member of the Healing Words Foundation. I'm a family practitioner, 45 years uh, in practice now and uh, practiced in Falcon for 14 years and then moved to Pier but I've been going back to Falcon for the last 30 years, uh, once a week to help out up there and practice up there too. Where else can you get free, non-biased medical education? And I stress that because it's non-biased, we don't take advertising, there's no drug company interference or pressure there, and it's uh, all science-based. It gives people information on anywhere from neurology to urology, GI, cardiology. They can get all kinds of information without having to travel, and it's free. Well, they're gonna get a wealth of information on just about every topic throughout the year. We, we cover a little of everything throughout the year. A lot of people have benefited directly. They've, they've told me personally, they've directly benefited by the information they got on this program. For more information or to donate, head to www.prairiedoc.org or you can send your donations to P.O. Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota 57006. And thank you for your support. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by. At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. 
and with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System. Ophthalmology Limited. South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians. Avera Heart Hospital. First Bank and Trust. Dakota Allergy and Asthma. Vance Thompson Vision. Monument Health. Black Hills Medical Society. Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society. Pier District Medical Society. Sioux Falls District Medical Society. Yankton District Medical Society. Orthopedic Institute. Lake Ponset Sailing Academy. Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy. Dakota Bank. South Dakota American College of Physicians. And Swiftel Communications.